Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Sarah Haddon is the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we have the triumvirate of Michael Volkov, Sarah Haddon, and Jonathan Armstrong. Mike takes a look at the FCPA corporate enforcement policy guidance and where the DOJ has gone over the past year. Sarah reflects back on some of the articles, uh, highlights, and changes from Corporate Compliance Insights and where she sees CCI going in the new year. And Jonathan Armstrong takes a look at SFO prosecutions and where it may be going in terms of anti-bribery, anti-corruption prosecution of the UK Bribery Act. Shoutouts and rants follow at the end of the episode. I know you will enjoy it. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Sarah Haddon, what have you seen over the past year? Well, thank you. I'll tell you, Tom, it has been nice. It is nice, rather, to be on the final lap of 2019. And I'm glad that we are here and that we're doing this wrap-up podcast today. It was a good excuse for me to spend some time this week working with our editor, Emily Ellis, on the last article that we'll publish this year, which is, as always, our roundup of the top stories on CCI for the entire year. So since I worked on that today, I wanted to share some of the results with our Everything Compliance listeners today, and I'll I'll just mention some of the stories, but in no particular order. When we round up our top stories of the year, we look first at traffic numbers. How many times was a story clicked on and shared, that sort of thing. And we look, too, at social media post engagement. And then we also always make a note from Google Analytics of the evergreen stories in our archive that year in and year out are still getting action because the messages in there are timeless and because, of course, thanks to search engines, older articles from some of our most popular and influential influential authors, they will often outperform some of the newer, hotter topics. So we look at the old and at the new for our roundup. And this year, our roundup includes an article from 2017 by Frank Buccaro that happens to be the most read article on the website this year. It was clicked on 45,547 times. And the title is, What Would You Do? Ethical Dilemmas in the Workplace. And that was such a big number of reads, just such a big fat number that I had to call up Frank and tell him, of course. And if you know Frank Bucaro at all, you won't be surprised that he wisecracked in a self deprecating way that he couldn't wait to tell his wife because she always tells him, Frank, nobody out there is reading your stuff anyway. And we all know, of course, that that is not true. That is just classic Frank being humble. So that was that's the first story in our roundup. And moving on then from humility to levity, the other older article that we selected from CCI's archives is, believe it or not, because why not, we're going with top Dilbert comics of all time that happen to be about compliance. And this article, which includes reprints, of course, of the comics, 
It's exactly 10 years old. And it was read 5,360 times in 2019. So if you do the math, that means about 14 people a day, on average, chuckled over these compliance cartoons, probably when they were supposed to be doing something else, but that's none of my business. So enjoy. Uh, After all, Dilbert cartoons really are a nice break, I think, from the news of the day. And speaking of the news of the day, since you suggested, Tom, that we all talk on the podcast about the current administration's impact on compliance, I did try to compile a list of the Trump-related articles from 2019, but I got to tell you, there really were not very many. We had so much right after the election, but since that time, those submissions have really fallen off. We're just not getting sent a lot of Trump-related commentary these days. I don't think that that's because there's nothing to say, and I also don't think that it's because those with opinions don't feel comfortable sharing them in an open forum. Rather, I just, I think the news cycle maybe is to blame. It's hard to keep up. By the time our authors have gone through the writing and the editing process and the approvals process on their end, our collective attention is sort of on to the next thing, you know? But so since we weren't offered and nor did we really solicit a lot of Trump-related commentary, I'm pleased to note the success of some of the content that we did solicit and some new authors that we had the honor of inviting to the conversation, so to speak. And the first one that comes to mind is Margarita Derilanco, who wrote Confessions of a Young Mom and Compliance Professional. Now, I've mentioned her on the podcast before, as her first article was the first in a new ongoing feature that we call Fresh Voices. And as you know, that's a platform for people who are new to a compliance career. Not necessarily those who are quite young or right out of school, but new to the job title, often because they took a convoluted or a creative route to this particular career path. So anyway, Margarita's article drew a parallel between the job of a compliance officer and the job of a parent of a toddler. And it really touched a chord for a segment of our audience. It was a top performer on social media this year, and it was bright and lovely, and lightly funny, and it was a great way to kick off the Fresh Voices feature. And it also attracted a new batch of new writers that you'll be hearing from in the first quarter of 2020. Another article that made our top stories list this year is very recent. We published this just a few weeks ago, and it's a personal account from Marcy Maslov about her experience being a whistleblower. She had a harrowing experience, as you may know, and she's very candid in her article about what happened to her in the days and weeks following reporting misconduct by her employer. Marcy's article is called The Truth About Whistleblowing, and it is very on point, I think, considering the news of the day. And next, we looked to identify just generally the top trending topic for the year, which was, hands down, no surprise, everyone's favorite acronyms, GDPR and CCPA, both of which require that we CYA, that is cover your bases and make sure that you're complying with data privacy laws. And why was this topic so hot? Well, compliance with these laws is no small thing. And the hardest part may well be pulling our heads out of the sand or shrugging off the denial and accepting that, yes, indeed, if we are dealing with consumer data, and virtually all of us are to some degree, you're probably subject to these regulations. And if not, don't worry, you'll be subject to the next round of data privacy laws as more U.S. states grapple with the issue and more laws go on the books. 
Meanwhile, you can read all about it here. I think CCI received approximately 11 squillion submissions that were variations on the theme of GDPR is almost here. Are you ready? Followed, of course, by GDPR is now here. Are you seriously not ready? Which can only mean, and I do say this happily, in 2020, I think our authors will start drilling down and going deeper in the topic, and they'll be saying, okay, people, you were warned. Now you're in hot water. What next? So anyway, it's been interesting to watch this develop, and we do look forward to the ongoing conversation about data privacy laws, as indeed this is everyone's new normal. And speaking of normal, and yes, that is my segue, one of CCI's authors has been challenging the normal in a manner of speaking. So our roundup includes a series of articles by James Bone about the five pillars of the cognitive risk framework. And as he defines them, these pillars provide a very sophisticated three-dimensional view of enterprise risk. So James Bone, in addition to being a writer and a speaker and an educator, he operates an online forum called the GRC Blue Book to provide risk and compliance professionals with transparency in the GRC vendor marketplace. And that is a very crowded, very competitive marketplace. So Important function there, with transparency being the key word. And I am thrilled to announce today that Columbia University has just awarded a grant to James to study enterprise risk management with the goal of determining what method, what strategy, or what framework is most effective, what works, and perhaps what might be something we think works but is actually not working so well at all. And I'm doubly thrilled to tell you that CCI and Columbia University and James are sort of teaming up on this. We have been asked to be the media partner for this important research. So we're helping raise awareness of the study. And we will be publishing James's summary of the results next year. So no doubt in my rants and shout outs later, Tom, I want to tell uh, our listeners how they can participate. And yeah, that's a bit of a plug, but this is not a survey sponsored by a brand or a vendor that's meant to be pure research that we can all learn from. And speaking of learning from thought leaders and subject matter experts, our roundup of top stories contains four very popular articles from some members of the Everything Compliance Roundtable. Now, you will think that I am pandering because you gentlemen were nice enough to add a chair to the table for me, but that is not the case. Thanks to your loyal readers, thanks to some robust social media activity, Articles by Mike Volkov, Jay Rosen, and Matt Kelly, and a downloadable white paper by you, Tom, represented some of the most widely read and well-received content of the year. So briefly here, our roundup is going to include Jay's excellent series called Ethical Culture, Why It Matters, and a very popular article from Mike called How the Chief Risk Officer's Role Will Change in 2019. And the list includes your white paper, Tom, called Welcome to the OFAC Compliance Framework. That happened to be one of our most popular downloads on the site over the course of the year. And finally, a particularly thought-provoking guest post from Matt called What the Shootings Mean for Ethics and Compliance, which looked at the implications of the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton earlier in the year. So there you have it. There's a sneak peek at some of the stories that we will be showcasing in our final article of 2019. It was great to spend that time today looking over the past 12 months of publishing, and as always, we did it with gratitude. 
grateful to our authors for contributing, to our readers, and to your podcast listeners who keep showing up for this crazy ride. And so with that, happy holidays all to everyone at the table here and, of course, to our readers and listeners and sponsors. Thank you, Tom. Jonathan Armstrong, what has been uh, the situation with the serious fraud office regarding its prosecution or perhaps lack thereof in the uh, corruption space over the past uh, year or so? Yeah, I think from my point of view, until the last week or so, certainly it had been a quiet year. And in some respects, it's a transitional year, I guess, with having a new-ish director. We certainly sort of started off in transitional mode. So in February, two of the largest SFO investigations were closed down, one into uh, GlaxoSmithKline GSK, which had been a long-running investigation. You might remember that we've talked on these podcasts before about GSK's problems in in China, for example, but there had been a a wider-ranging SFO investigation which was closed. And then at the same time, the SFO announced that the investigation into individuals connected with uh, bribery at Rolls-Royce had also been closed down. And that decision, I think, seemed somewhat unusual, given that Rolls-Royce had um, entered into a DPO with the SFO. They'd agreed to pay 497 million sterling to the SFO plus costs. Uh, And that uh, DPA, you might remember, had taken place in January 2017. As part of the DPA, Rolls-Royce handed over a lot of documents, so interviews with individuals, they handed over uh, emails, etc. And some of those emails that we had seen publicly looked pretty unpleasant. You know, an individual saying that if a co-worker repeated the sort of stuff he was repeating in emails, somebody would haul him back to HQ and scrub his face, whatever that might mean. And and clearly, at least at first blush, some suspicions that things weren't quite right. And, and again, the 497 million pound payment would also suggest that there was something uh, to investigate. But uh, the new uh, SFO regime decided, as I say, at the start of the year, that no criminal uh, char- uh, no, no criminal cases would be brought against the individuals involved. Now, I guess that's a theme that we've talked about before on these podcasts, that it's often easier to get a corporation to enter into a DPA in the US than it is to stick uh, prosecutions on individuals. There are probably all sorts of reasons for that, including the fact that juries often won't convict people who are stood in front of them, whereas corporations often will surrender rather than uh, take it on to trial. And obviously, that's a trend that we've seen in the US, I'd suggest. DPAs are still relatively new in the UK, but it looks as if that trend is continuing uh, over here. I mean, other than that, it's been a relatively quiet year. We had a um, 
the uh, DPO with uh, Sarclad in, in July. Again, a similar pattern. Uh, the, the DPA had been done uh, a while earlier. This was the trial against three individuals who were again uh, acquitted by the jury. We had another DPA in July against Circo uh, uh, Geographics. And then not a lot. There's the uh, odd bit of news around things like the LIBOR investigation, where again, not, not that much progress to report. Um, some forestry cases which are fairly insignificant in our scheme of things. And then in uh, uh, just recently on uh, November uh, 25th, we heard news of the next round of the Alstom investigation. So you might remember that Alstom has been a long-running SFO investigation into a number of Alstom entities. And that has included cases, again, against corporations and against uh, individuals. And continuing my theme, you might remember that um, some of the individuals involved who were prosecuted were acquitted, including um, one of the Alstom entities' former a senior vice president of ethics and compliance. So the Alstom investigation itself has been a bit of a uh, mixed bag. There was an earlier case against uh, Alstom Power where the corporation did pay money over. And as I say, at the end uh, of November, Alstom Network UK was ordered to pay uh, 15 million sterling, that's about $19 million, in connection with its bribery to win a, a Tunisian transport contract. Uh, this seemed to involve bogus consultancy agreements, and it's said that the profit from those uh, bogus agreements was 12 million sterling. And um, uh, again, this seems to have been an investigation that's somewhat wide-ranging in terms of geography and seems to have been originally initiated by the Swiss authorities handing information over to the uh, SFO. So um, I would say a, a mixed year, probably a transitional year. As I said, the theme being that it's easier to get DPAs out of corporations than it is to prosecute individuals. The SFO have still got a number of irons in the fire. They're uh, talking a good game. I think there's been a slightly more temperate attitude to things like privilege in particular. But I think it is a, uh, you know, to excuse the pun, I think the jury's out on the SFO's ability to conduct criminal trials against individuals in particular. Jonathan, you mentioned uh, there at the end the issue of privilege, and that mm. seems to have been uh, a fairly vigorous debate in the United Kingdom over the past year. I was wondering kind of uh, not so much what where we started and how we got to where we are, but where do you think we are now in terms of 
attorney-client privilege, uh, which either does or does not have to be um, attorney-client privilege materials that does or does not have to be turned over uh, to the SFO? And how does a corporation um, protect itself or try to protect whatever privilege is left? Well, there are a number of uh, cases ongoing at the moment which will look both at privilege and also in, in some respects in connection with fairness. So one uh, is a uh, heavily litigated case involving uh, ENRC. It's an investigation that was conducted for them uh, by external counsel. It's fair to say that the corporation and its counsel fell out, uh, well, fell out big style, as I guess you would say, in the US. And um, there's ongoing litigation both over privilege and a peculiar piece of litigation where the SFO is saying that if it is liable to the corporation, then the lawyer who uh, who, who cooperated uh, with the SFO uh, shares that liability. And we've just had the case back into court where the law firm, the US law firm concerned, are trying to cap liability. And the courts have decided that that cap doesn't apply. In the UK, uh, law firms can cap their liability to clients. But this is a peculiar case where the liability to the SFO could exceed the liability to the client in an action originated by the client. So in short, on attorney-client privilege, we're in a somewhat messy state. The courts have been more protective, rightly so, of privilege uh, and, and, and trying to uphold that. It is unfortunate that the prior regime at the SFO was seen as being uh, uh, as, as trying to attack privilege. The other case that we've got, which is interesting, which will I suspect be coming round soon, is the SFO have quite wide-ranging powers to order people to produce documents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in an unusual case, they invited two representatives of a UK corporation over for a chat in London and then served documents on them whilst they'd come over for what I, I think they will say they thought was, was a friendly chat rather than to be physically present in a room to have uh, um, notices served on them just as they tried to leave. And, and, and that, I think, will be an interesting case. It you know, perhaps goes against the British spirit of fairness somewhat in that we... Uh, you know, often expect people to follow meeting agendas. So uh, we probably oughtn't to say too much about that because it's a it's a live um, it's a live case at the moment. But but expect news on that next year as well. So I think next year there'll be some a, a couple of interesting cases. The un, the thing that we can't predict, I guess, is how active the SFO will be and whether some of the relatively few cases that survive from the previous uh, directorship uh, come to fruition this year or next. So with the, um, that's interesting um, about the question you just posed, but uh, going forward, 
Jonathan, do you still see uh, deferred prosecutions agreements as a not simply a viable option for the SFO, but really a an arrow in the quiver of the prosecutors to try to resolve cases uh, going forward as well? I, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, obviously, the current director uh, has spent time uh, in the U.S. working for the U.S. authorities, and you know, it's definitely isn't it a uh, a firm weapon in the in the armament of the U.S. authorities, and I think she'll be keen to demonstrate that the DPOs, the DPAs have a have a role to play in the UK regime as well. Um, but in some respects, as I've said before, that the acid test is really if you can prosecute individuals for their part in uh, bribery schemes. And, and that, unfortunately, is where the, the track record is somewhat checkered. I would have to say, sitting across the pond from you, that uh, I agree with uh, that last statement. And the um, uh, perhaps the uh, Alstom agreement and sentence uh, by the court, or not sentence, but the fine levied on Alstom will uh, really give a little more momentum, if, if not a psychological boost to the SFO going into uh, – the first year of our next decade, 2020. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And of course, uh, we can't forget the political considerations as well. We're going to have um, you know, a new regime, whether it's the current prime minister continues or whether it's some sort of a coalition after the election. And the SFO in the past has been something of a uh, political football and it'll be interesting to see whether the um, the you know the Alstom deal uh, satisfies those uh, SFO critics, particularly if they are part of a new government. Well, so we've never really explored, but do you have any sense of how a Labour government might uh, view the SFO? I think it's hard to know because I think we don't really know who uh, runs that part of the Labour Party strategy. And I do know, but not well, uh, Sakia Starmer, who's the uh, Brexit minister, who's the former uh, director of public prosecutions. So somebody who will know the SFO very well and will know their way around the prosecution system. And so far as my limited dealings with him, a man of absolute integrity. So if those that are, um, you know, professionally minded get to make the decisions, then I, I wouldn't have thought there'd be too many surprises. And whether that's the SFO remaining independent or whether it's merging with some of the more uh, specialist elements of the uh, CPS, which is the body that Sakir was responsible for in the past, I, I, I suspect that the philosophy would be much the same. There are, however, some, uh, let's just say, less professional, more shoot-from-the-hip elements of the Labour Party with all sorts of uh, uh, agendas, um, which could interfere or at least uh, dictate the direction of the SFO. So there are uh, anti-Israeli elements in the Labour Party who could decide that they want to 
look particularly at things like um, arms contracts in the Middle East, which have been a prior area uh, of SFO activity. Um, so who knows, really? It's um, my, my suspicion is that whichever government comes in will have, um, you know, will have uh, other things to concentrate on. But in the run-up to the election, there has been a plea, for example, in the Conservative Party for them to stop taking money from people associated with the arms trade who have been um, uh, investigated, but then not charged by the SFO. So the role of the SFO continues, I think, to be, uh, as I say, a, a political football to some extent. Jonathan, one of the consistent themes we've seen in the United States, in Brazil, in Malaysia, in South Africa, in a wide variety of countries where there's been regime change, even if that change has been through a democratically elected uh, or de democratic election, is the line prosecutors have continued cooperation on an international basis for investigations and enforcement actions. Do you have the sense that uh, sort of at the line prosecutor level, the SFO is still committed to uh, cooperation and in both investigations and enforcement actions with their international colleagues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the, the SFO uh, isn't really the same as, let's say, its equivalent uh, U.S. Um, uh, bodies in that there doesn't tend to be a huge staff turnover when there's an election. The prosecutors there are, you know, prosecutors first and foremost. They're not political appointees. They don't change when the regime changes. So I wouldn't have thought that we'd see any, uh, any you know, huge turnover of staff that, that uh, goes with any uh, change of political party. I would think it's business as usual. I would think that things like internal cooperation continue as usual. That was certainly uh, the case previously when we've moved from Conservative to Labour to Coalition to Conservative. And, and I wouldn't expect any vast change. The only thing that would be on my radar, as I've said, would be the interest of some of the Labour Party leadership in the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Michael Volkoff, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Trump administration 2019 FCPA enforcement. Uh, it turned out to be a fairly significant year, but where do you see this Department of Justice uh, taking enforcement uh, from perhaps where it was to where it is now and where they may take it in the future? Well, I think uh, there are a couple headlines. Uh, the first is consistency uh, and refinement. Um, and I think the DOJ, you know, without getting into sort of the higher up political issues, but just on a pure FCPA type of enforcement issues, um, it's been a good year. I, I mean, I think uh, they brought stability to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, they brought more stability to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Um, I think they have followed up 
Uh, they're more transparent than they uh, have been in the past. Um, in the last few years, you know, it's kind of like what we always talk about, Tom. They sort of say, here's what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And I think these guys are, are doing it that way. Um, there has been some mumbling, but I don't think it's a big issue that some of the corporations may be getting bigger breaks than they should be getting. For example, Cognizant got their break, uh, you know, where they got a declination. Um, but I think they told people that they were going to be giving out corporate breaks like a declination in the appropriate circumstance. And Cognizant, after we learned more about how quickly Cognizant turned around and uh, brought in individuals um, for prosecution, uh, they ended up prosecuting the uh, CEO and the GC and the chief of uh, operating officer. So is cooperating, I believe. So. I think uh, the message here is uh, things are going sort of in a straight line. Uh, the numbers are increasing with regard to individuals. And that has been, let's go back to, you know, the Yates memo. And, and uh, here we are 2015 and we're going to increase individual prosecutions. And this year has been, I think they were up to 34 in, in that. And that's uh, an increase of about... Uh, 10 from last year, and I still think we're not done because I think some individuals may get prosecuted out of Erickson, um, depending upon how the statute of limitations breaks. You may see some individuals in Una Oil, you know, who are people who were prosecuted as a result of Una Oil's cooperation. Uh, there's still a ways to go yet uh, in that. So, um, look, DOJ told us what they were going to do. They put it on paper and they're enforcing it on paper. They're more transparent. And they told us they were going to increase individual prosecution. And I think they have. And this year also, I think, has been a great year for DOJ in terms of FCPA trial performance. Uh, Dick Casson just did a, re a really nice article in the FCPA blog about that. Uh, and about their success in jury trials. And I think that reflects some of uh, growing public concern over the word corruption uh, and, and the perception of how corrupt D.C. is, is filtering back to juries who are sitting in front of somebody charged with corruption. Uh, and I think it has given FCPA prosecutors a little bit more leverage uh, in plea negotiations now because going to trial is not going to be uh, a, a very good uh, result uh, for most people in, in federal court. So all of this, I have to say, Tom, is, uh, you know, they refined a lot of their policies and everything that they've done has been, I think, uh, pretty good in terms of providing structures, particularly around corporate monitors, the, obviously the settlement policy. Uh, we saw uh, the enforcement policy and we saw that also stretch to the antitrust division. Uh, which is a welcome development. So, you know, their emphasis on compliance and incentives uh, seems to be paying off. So uh, kudos to the Justice Department and for the FCPA unit, which I think has always been one of the best performing units of the Justice Department. Mike, do you see this uh, additionally? Uh, I remember in the early part of this decade, you and I would talk about uh, trying to read the tea leaves, and that information was really uh, hiding in plain sight. But do you see greater transparency 
under uh, Brian Benkowski and uh, this um, Department of Justice really providing the compliance practitioner with uh, uh, exactly what the DOJ is looking for and how they want you to proceed? Uh, to a certain extent, I say yes on the compliance issue. I do think, um, uh, and I give them a lot of credit for the the, the new guidance. Uh, on the other hand, um, I do, I kind of compare it to the OFAC guidance that came out. And I thought the OFAC guidance was a little bit more prescriptive and a little bit more direct. Uh, but that's not to you know, it's a welcome, all of these are good developments. The more guidance they can give to compliance, uh, Benchkowski and his crew will go around and speak uh, and always emphasize the importance of compliance officers. I think they uh, realize the value of the function and they want to support uh, the compliance function as much as possible. I still would like to see um, DOJ sort of more explicitly address a couple of issues. One would be resources for the compliance function, which I, I think is a continuing challenge, uh, and also the authority of the, the chief compliance officer. I mean, I think we've made a lot of progress, but I think DOJ could do a little bit more in pushing that. Um, the guidance, you know, they just don't want to prescribe things and uh, they feel a little uncomfortable telling businesses how to do this. But I think they could go a little bit further without sacrificing that principle. So um, I'd like to see them speak out a little bit more on behalf of the chief compliance officer function. Michael Volkoff, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? I've got, uh, I'm, I'm a positive person here, so I'm going to do a shout out. And the shout out goes to the trial team. Uh, involved in the Hoskins uh, case up in Connecticut. Uh, Dan Kahn, who I know started with that case uh, as a line assistant and had the case when he um, and has stuck with it all these years, even as he was the head of the FCPA unit and just recently got promoted in the fraud section, uh, which is kudos to him. Uh, and uh, Lorinda uh Larray, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name. I know her too, and she did a great job on the trial, and they had a local AUSA who helped them. And congratulations to them. I mean, to stick with this case through all the appeals, all the trials and tribulations, uh, and then to ultimately secure a conviction after one day of deliberations during the first day, that is remarkable. To take an FCPA case and do that, uh, that means they did a great job. So kudos to them. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a rant and or shout out for us today? Well, I've got a somewhat unusual shout out, Tom. Uh, I think the world of compliance has been done a great favor by somebody who you wouldn't associate with compliance. Somebody who said that their um, life away from their daytime occupation has been following a rigorous plan, making sure that everything works and making sure that everything uh, connects and that's a passion to make sure that you build something from the ground up uh, and, and ensure that level of compliance throughout. I am, of course, referring to Sir Rod Stewart and his uh, fantastic model railway set. I'm not sure if you've seen that in the US, but this is a, a story that's gripped the nation here. And I think there are many lessons for compliance professionals 
in the passion that uh, Sir Rod has put into building that train set up. Uh, okay, you're right. Uh, that has not gotten a lot of play in the United States. Thank you. <laughs> to, uh, to Sir Rod, and may Maggie May be always with him. Sarah Haddon, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? I do. I have a shout out. As promised, I want to make sure that our listeners are aware of how they can participate in the risk, uh, the risk management study run by Columbia University and James Bone. It's a really easy URL. I'll put it in the show notes, but let me just tell you, go right now to advancedriskpractice.com. That's advancedriskpractice.com. It's a really quick survey. I think it's just like 14 questions. Shouldn't take more than about five minutes. And if you participate, if you elect this option, you can have the results of the survey sent directly to you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this final episode of 2019 of Everything Compliance. The survey that Sarah referenced and her shout out, we'll link to that in the show notes. So uh, please fill that out. It would be most helpful for all of us going forward. From the gang at Everything Compliance, we wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holiday Season. I hope you'll join us in 2020 when the Everything Compliance gang gets back. We're going to have some interesting changes that I know you will enjoy. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.